This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and I have a massive team in the studio with me this morning. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you. We also have Dr. Ailey. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And Dr. Jen. Howdy. Uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed. Howdy, Curry, you took me off guard there for a second. Howdy, partner. Oh, boy. Uh, Liv's doing our Twitter feed. Um, I'm going to cough my way through the show, hopefully not, but if I do, I'll just hand over to Dr. Jen because she knows what's going on. We, um, we're, we're doing a special show today. We're going to talk a lot about uh, gender issues in science and research in general, and we have a number of uh, guests we're going to talk to about that, and our intrepid stars within the studio have prepared an incredible amount of data. It's freaking me out. Um, they're laughing at each other. <laughs> you guys did prepare, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, good. Really hard. Now, what we're going to do, though, first is we're going to cross to a, a live call. We have um, Professor Emma Johnson on the phone. Emma, can you hear us? I can hear you all too well. Fan- fantastic. <laughs> now, just to uh, give you a background, Emma is from the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences up at the University of New South Wales. And, Emma, I understand you've just been uh, declared the new Pro Vice-Chancellor up there as well. I have taken on that mantle. Well, I, I officially start on May 23rd, but yes, Pro Vice Chancellor. May 23rd. Twen- so does that, does that mean you have 22 days left to do research? <laughs> well, the good news about the Pro Vice Chancellor research position, I think it's good news, is that I am expected to continue a research program at the same time. I've so heard that, I've heard that from other Pro Vice Chancellors before. And, well, you could be the first. Look, let's hope, hope that's true. Tell us a bit about the research you're doing at the moment, because you're, you're, you're into the environment. We, um, we do a lot of environmental science on this show. Um, what's, what's sort of hot in your, your area at the moment? Yeah, so I study environmental impacts in marine and estuarine ecosystems pretty much everywhere from the tropics down to the poles. And I guess that some of the key issues that we look at are contaminant impacts, biological invasions, uh, climate-related impacts, construction in the marine environment. We, we cover a huge number of different topics, and the reason for that is because they all happen in the same place. You mm. know, wherever humans are concentrated, industry is concentrated, trade is con- concentrated, and then the threats and the stressors are in the same place. So part of what we do is also develop new biological d- detection tools, essentially diagnostic tools that are more sophisticated and will give us a better sense of what are the main drivers of impact in a particular location and how can we help protect that ecosystem from that impact and i mean there's been a lot of news lately about the coral bleaching especially around our coral reef i mean what's your view of that this seems to be something we were hoping wouldn't happen anytime soon yeah well this particular bleaching event was predicted uh, as part of the very large el nino that's happening at the moment but obviously the chance of it being so severe has been greatly increased by climate related change and Temperature changes in the ocean are happening far more quickly and far more, you know, dramatically than even on land. So we are actually seeing rapid increases in temperature. In this particular case with the bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef, it's really distressing to people, uh, mm. particularly because it's occurring in the area that is least stressed by other activities. So it's in the most pristine northern regions that we're actually seeing the most severe bleaching activity. In one sense, we all thought that might be the place that would escape from, you know, the severe effects of bleaching because it didn't have that terrible problem of the of the terrigenous runoff. So the, the runoff from agricultural land use and the herbicides and the pesticides has been one of the major causes of decline in the Great Barrier Reef up until now. And everybody 
already thought, well, on top of that, to add bleaching as a climate-related impact, that will just devastate the southern parts of the reef. But in fact, what we're seeing is this particular bleaching event is happening much more extremely in the further, the furthest reaches. Mm. I mean, one, one question. Papua New Guinea. One question I have for you is: How long does it take for a, a reef such as as ours to repair? I mean, is it something that happens over tens of years, or is this a sort of hundred-year repair requirement? Well, reefs are a bit, if you, if you think the analogous system of a, of a rainforest, an old growth forest, so you can get corals back within 10 to 15 years, for example, um, but, but the thing is, reefs are complex, and the older they are, the less frequently disturbed, you'll get a different suite of species, so a different composition. So if you have a reef that hasn't gone through a major cyclone event or it hasn't had a big bleaching event or another type of disturbance, such as a crown of thorns sea star, you'll have some very, very old corals, you know, corals mm. can get hundreds of years old. And what we're looking at now is a system that's going to be very frequently disturbed. So it'll be always in that juvenile successional state. Yeah. Now, we wanted to have a chat to you today also because of your stance in terms of gender equity in the sciences. I might get you to start by just giving us your view on how things are at the moment, a bit of a sort of a state of the nation, if you will, uh, especially in Australia, as to how, how that sort of gender equality balance is going in the sciences and um, and whether or not you're happy with it the way it is at the moment. You're, you're doing quite well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so well, we, we won't talk about exceptions, but, you know, there are reasons why some women have had an opportunity to get to the top, like myself, and, you know, I can talk about that individually, but it's more interesting to look at the bigger picture the bigger picture is still really quite poor and mm -hmm. and that's really disturbing because we have had an enormous number of women being educated in the sciences right up to the end of PhD for many, many decades. And it, it, some people still say, and people particularly in, you know, senior positions in science, they have the feeling that it's okay. It's it's changing, it's just changing slowly. Yep. But in fact, when you look at the data, it's really not changing. In fact, it's going backwards in some areas. So at the moment, obviously, you would have heard there's about 16% of the professorial level uh, STEM people, so science, technology, engineering and maths, in university systems are women, so only 16%. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the most recent report from the chief scientist, the, the numbers are really dire in terms of not just the senior people but all STEM-qualified people. So for all STEM-qualified people, only 16% are women. Um, and, and the interesting thing is in science it's kind of 50-50 at, at the graduate level, but in engineering it's 93% men. Um, right. And in IT, it's 75% men. And in maths, it's 60% men. So it's very much uh, discipline-specific issues. So that's where our people are coming from. So our, our pipeline of people can be really gendered right from the beginning, which makes it obviously even more difficult when the other problems come along later down the track. And what we see, for example, in the natural sciences is we have 50-50 graduating from their PhD, and then the problems begin because the structure of our, our discipline, the structure of our careers is such that it really disadvantages women more than men in terms of getting those continuing positions. Can, can I ask you to unpack that a little bit, Emma, because we, we hear this a lot um, and there do seem to be programs in place to try and offset this, but, but what aspects of the structure do disadvantage women? Can you unpack that a little for us? Yeah, so, so obviously this is a wicked problem because we've got 
decades and decades of cultural inertia as well as structural issues and and the two interact so you can't really talk about one without talking about the other but the simple structural issues at the moment in university sector in other research institutions in terms of women proceeding into long-term research careers is the series of short-term contracts that people are required to do post their PhD. So PhD you would have already expected to have done at least probably eight years at higher education institution and then the expectation is probably three maybe even four postdoctoral positions. They last about two years each and the ideal situation for that getting that continuing position or getting that professorial position is that you would do those postdocs in fantastic labs all over the world so move for two years move for two years move for two years move for two years all over the world wherever the jobs are and mm -hmm. all that time when you're doing that you concentrate solely on your job that means you've got you know eight to 16 years worth of post you know coming out of high school you've got 16 years before you're going to settle down and have a stable position in one location that is ridiculous if you're trying also to have a family if you think you want to settle down and get maternity leave you and you want to have children you want to take some time out and you maybe want to work part-time for a while it's almost impossible with that set up mm, certainly now, yeah, but now, now add to that the fact that when you do try and write papers and when you do try and write grant applications and when you do try and write your CV, there's a whole lot of gendered situations that happen there that are discriminatory. So we know from studies that references that are written for female scientists will use much weaker language and very different language to references written for male candidates who have the same type of CV. Who the, who the devil's like, writing these references? <laughs> We are. We all are. We're, we're all stuck in this terrible situation where there's a whole lot of unconscious bias that's not recognised. Mm. And women are discriminating against men as much as men are. But then you also find that the panels read, read CVs differently. Yeah. And they will judge them differently. And then they will interview people differently. So, and then you've got just a nightmare. So, Emma, it's Dr Ailey here. So, I mean, I suppose that comes to my next question is, is where are the leaks in this pipeline? I mean, you talk about how, okay, engineering and maths, it's, it's getting people into the pipeline in the first place. But then there's, you know, other disciplines, biological sciences, for example, where at the, you know, the PhD level, things are kind of 50-50, even the first postdoc level of 50-50. Um, obviously, if you've got family considerations and things like that, but, um, you know, not everybody has a family and, and you've got plenty of women out there who, um, you know, can do, you know, have those opportunities and don't have to worry about those things. So you talk about unconscious bias. Is that is that the primary reason why uh, women aren't going through to those senior levels? I think it's one of the primary reasons. I also think women are choosing not to go through, and, and those choices can be gendered as well. You know, so if you're if you're surrounded by people who are suggesting actually scientific careers are too competitive and too focused and et cetera, et cetera, and not great for you as a woman, and people do get these messages from a number of different avenues, from their grandparents, from their aunties, from their, you know, whoever's surrounding them from their friends, then you may choose, in inverted commas, to leave science and, and do something else which is more oriented towards the, the gendered culture that we have. So there's that choice issue and then there's also the, the unconscious bias that hits people regardless of whether or not they decide to have a family they um, will be hit by those unconscious biases at, at several 
several different situations along the way. So when we did the modelling uh, for natural sciences, and, and in particular there was a group at the University of Melbourne I was working with who did the data on just ecologists, so basically Google stalked everyone across the, the universities in Australia and looked through time at, they assessed the cached websites of the universities to see through time what was happening. We saw very clearly, and this is Emily Nicholson um, collected the primary data and analysed it with a, a team of people, she saw very clearly that it was at that level C position, which is, um, so you get associate lecturer, lecturer, and then senior lecturer, and obviously the continuing positions or those long-term positions are usually employed at level B, C. It was exactly at that point where, where positions transitioned from short-term contracts to continuing that we lost most of the women. Mm. It's, it's interesting, Emma, with all these things. I mean, what, what I'd like to know from you now is if you had three big things that you could do over the coming, sort of, say, five years, and not that Provost Chancellors get to do things, but you never know, um, what would what would that be? I mean, what would be the, the top three things you would do now to start really attacking this problem? So, so top three things. It, it, it does depend on the pipeline, on the discipline. So what I would do for engineering would be different to what I would do for natural sciences, mm-hmm. and that's obviously because we're losing, you know, people at different points. If we just take... The, the situation where we know we're getting women through into the postdoc position, you know, into the PhDs, and we say, what are yep. the top three things you could do there? One of the things we could do is to stop requiring this series of short-term contracts and actually employ people on long-term contracts. Now, obviously, you have performance requirements, right? Mm. Because everyone says, oh, but, you know, you might choose the wrong person. <laughs> And I'm like, yes, but there are other mechanisms we have for making sure that people do work hard and that they also can have a great, you know, balanced work life. Are you are you suggesting that universities could take on a more positive risk profile? <laughs> I guess so. You know? Sounds outrageous. <laughs> yeah. So provide some security earlier on, and that doesn't mean that you've got a life, you know, lifetime job situation that's very rare in any system at the moment in fact when i say continuing it's you know if i don't perform i can still be out of a job well in fact one of the things that we we should state there for for anyone from a university who's listening that is in, in most systems it's cheaper to terminate a continuing position than it is a contract position and continuing is not the same as what we used to call tenure it's not a job for life no that's right yeah 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 and i keep slipping up and using the word tenure but it's it's not that situation. So I think we could have recruitment of people into continuing positions that, um, you know, obviously have a series of performance requirements, but at an earlier stage in their career. Mm. Now, obviously, we need to do all the other things about making sure parental care is available. And I deliberately use the word parental care, because I think if we made parental care available rather than just maternity care, we and we would immediately make things better for everybody. Yep, agreed. So that would be the second thing I would do. Uh, and the third thing I would do would be to have unconscious bias training for everyone who's sitting on recruitment panels, grant panels, you know, anything that anything where you might be making a decision where it would be useful to be able to identify your own bias. Mm. And so you could slow down the application of that bias. Well, Emma, good luck with those three things. We expect them to be done at UNSW by the end of the year. Um, <laughs> no, by the end of June, There's a June. <laughs> um, thanks so much for chatting to us today. We're going to talk a lot more about gender uh, during the show um, today and we, we're also speaking to another extraordinary researcher um, from up in your neck of the woods a bit later. Um, good luck with your new role and um, keep up both the environmental and gender battles. 
Thank you very much. Great talking to you. Professor Emma Johnson, Pro Vice-Chancellor at the University of New South Wales in the School of Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences. You're listening to Einstein Agogo on 3RRR. Um, if you don't recognise my voice, I'm the uh, guy formerly known as Dr Shane who's got a cold. Well, getting over one a bit more husky than normal. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Uh, Dr. Ailey and Dr. Jenny have got a lot of data that they're going to look up between now and then and present to us, I think. Is that right, ladies? Something like that, yeah. yeah. something like that. All right, stick around, folks. We'll be back in a moment. Three. Triple. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We're tackling the diversity question today, which, uh, of course, includes issues of gender with regards to the sciences, engineering, medicine, the whole lot, and how we're doing in Australia and so forth. And I don't do it very often, but I'm going to hand over command of the show now to my two colleagues. Don't worry, folks, I'll be nearby in case they really go nuts. But Dr. Jen, Dr. Ailey. Oh, you're going to regret that. I know. Out of the studio, boys. No, <laughs> just kidding. But we did want to make it the point that we do recognise that, you know, diversity is a, is a big issue. And, a, and, you know, for any workforce that wants to be innovative and doing new, exciting things, you need a diverse workforce. And, and we're just choosing to focus today purely on, on the, the gender question, not because it's the only one, but because it's the one we decided we wanted <clears> to focus on right <throat> now. And I have a statistic to begin with which I think is horrifying, which I actually got from Emma from a plenary that she and Professor Mark Bergman gave last year at the Ecological Society meeting, and that is that there are more men named Peter running large companies in Australia than there are women. Oh, really? Just men named Peter. And if you look at men named Peter, David, Michael and Andrew, they outnumber women as heads of companies in Australia four to one. Wow. Which says something about how boring people are when they're choosing so their I'm still children. So <laughs> I'm still stuck on the Peter thing, but yeah, yeah. I'll get over it. But that, yeah. that's extraordinary. So we're not talking just science, we're talking general. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, we're all okay. aware that there's this massive disparity in terms of men and women from everything from how much they're paid yeah. to how likely they are to get jobs. And, and in science, it's particularly rife as Emma as well. I just realised I've doomed my, my two kids to not be CEOs. Yeah, you should have called them, them Peter. Peter. Yeah, Peter 1, Peter 2. <laughs> P1, P2. Yeah, okay. But no, Ailey and I have just been, we've been reading stuff, haven't we? That's we been have. Quite horrifying. Yeah. Tell us some of the studies you were just looking yeah, at. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as Jen said, we're talking about diversity in the workplace, and this is a, a wider thing, but I suppose the question is, well, why does diversity even matter? You know, I mean, if someone's good at their job, they're good at their job. Why does, why do we, why do we care about that? And I suppose that's because there's been a lot of recent studies, <clears throat> excuse me, that have, talked about how important diversity is for driving creativity and driving innovation, two things of which are crucial to new scientific discoveries and scientific research. So, of course, science is, is kind of relying on this creativity and, and innovation to move us forward. And so these studies have basically looked at diversity in the workplaces. Most of them have been kind of economic and, and management studies. But what they've found is that companies do better. Scientific companies and other companies do better when you have diverse points of view. And the reason they do better funnily enough, is because they cause conflict. When mm. people have different points of view and challenge other people's notion of the status quo, that is when you start thinking outside the box and that is when uh, you start driving innovation. Right. It's yeah. when new ideas develop. That's you exactly have to right. justify what you've just said rather than everyone accepting it you know, as the status quo. Exactly. And it's really interesting because there's also psychological things at play as well. And that turns out that if you hear a, a dissenting opinion from someone who is different from you, so someone who is a different race, different ethnicity, different gender, you actually tend to listen to it more yeah. than someone who is, uh, you know, 
similar than you in the, uh, similar to you in the diversity pool, can, which can, is really interesting. Can I state the obvious here that workplaces that are not diverse, for me anyway, are just boring. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, if <laughs> so everyone's funny. like you, yeah, and everyone thinks about it, conglomerates actually in the nineties used to do a personality survey in most of their hiring in the U.S. and they'd been doing it for ten or fifteen years, and then all of a sudden they had to stop because all their product innovation stalled because right. everybody thought the same way. Yeah. yeah. It just sounds boring. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, this is what it's all about, is, is bringing in these different perspectives, you know, challenging your thinking, which is, you know, science is about challenging assumptions and challenging, mm. you know, how we see the world and, and trying to, you know, work out what's going on. And, so, and I can tell you, you know, I mean, you guys don't know this, but when I refer to you, my team, mm. um, outside of here, I always refer to you as a mixed bag of lollies. <laughs> <laughs> and and everyone, everyone knows there's one or two in there. Well, everyone knows there's one or two in there that you don't want. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that. Think about that. You're being Next. rude now, Shane. Oh, well, you know, I'm just saying. But it's you, you do. You need a mix. You need and a diversity of voices. And yeah. I think it's very hard to argue with. So I think we need to start from the from the very clear foundation of we want workforces who are, you know, diverse and That's right. and include incredibly different points of view. And almost then, by definition, you require both men and women to be in those workforces. So if in science in Australia and in fact across all developed nations, essentially, we face this situation where we have every reason to believe that that boys and girls are equally interested in science and equally capable of doing well in science all through school in maths they start dropping off kind of at school Mm. in undergrad they start dropping off out of chemistry in the biological sciences and i think ailey was just saying in the earth sciences we manage to keep the women there until until they get to postdocs but then all of a sudden you project forward and you see that classic kind of scissor graph whereby you have uh seniority of position on on one axis and then gender on the other and all of a sudden we see the women just aren't there anymore absolutely you know as soon as you get up to that professorial level level as as emma said before i think it was 16 percent across the sciences or something like that um and that's yeah as she as she mentioned before that's that's due to a number of reasons um but there's some really really um interesting stuff on for example unconscious bias you know and and that kind of stuff and of course there's the family considerations as well yeah i loved emma's suggestion that we need everybody who's making decisions about anything to be trained in this unconscious bias and you can google it right now if you google um harvard and implicit bias you can do your own tests yes i did one this morning actually and it can be really striking if you look at the overall results you know the majority of people come out as unconsciously favoring the linkage between science and men they just Mm -hmm. without question you know and people in my field have said that you know they've been selecting people for plenaries or selecting people for panels and they don't you know many of these are women and they're not trying to choose men Mm. in fact they prefer to choose women it's just that the kind of outstanding senior researchers in their field who've made big names for themselves are more often men so they're the ones who get and, asked i mean to be fair they're it's an unconscious bias so this, yeah. this mm. isn't a directive people have in their minds no, they're not, not doing it all. deliberately and in, in you know it's, it's interesting having done those tests myself and that mm. came out reasonably well but there mm. was still an element yes. of it you can't completely take Absolutely. it out when you've grown up in our society so yeah. but it's there, there there's paths you can go down in the hiring phase that really open you up to this mm. yeah. uh, i've been very critical lately of um in, in, in one particular area when people use the word culture fit Mm-hmm. to yes. select applicants <laughs> because culture fit might be oh you know what we all use this particular type of software but that's not normally what they're saying yeah. and and it's kind of this pathway to let unconscious bias loose without really filtering it and realizing wait that's a really bad pathway to go down statistically we already know people like to hire people like themselves to begin with yep. 
And, and whenever you say culture fit, then you don't have to address all the other things that are really going on in your head. And it's just a, a terrible thing to hear in an interview panel. Are you still asking that question, do you like Star Wars? <laughs> Because I know you, Dr. Ray. No, no, no. People don't have to like Star Wars, and it's fine to work with them. When they um, start, but by the end, yeah. They're, sure. They're, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, no, I, I'm torn, but, y- you know, the, at least the stereotypical interest in Star Wars tends to favor more towards men. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and while that's not necessarily true anymore, although apparently when people made toys, it was for the latest movie because they didn't make any Ray character toys. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was terrible. Mm. Uh, so the, the unconscious biasing is tricky because, you know, we, we can understand that these pathways are difficult and there's been really good research to show that if you do go, you know, if you do follow the standard sort of female pathway, if you do, you know, your PhD, you do a couple of postdocs, then you go off and have babies, you take extended periods of leave, you come back part-time, that basically unless you had a very strong established track record mm. before then you're pretty much stuffed you're never mm. going to get back yep. because you're being measured by metrics that were designed by and for oh, people metrics. who work full time <laughs> and you're never going to you know match up to those metrics which is a big problem so we can talk about that and, and in the last part of the show we want to talk about things that can be done but the unconscious stuff is really difficult because well, un- people are making decisions that they're not even aware of that's right and the unconscious thing you know is so stark there, there was a really interesting study by Yale I think it was last year that basically got a hundred 127 scientists gave them two CVs. Now these CVs ended up being exactly the same, just with the name changed up at the top. One was John, one was Jane, or something yeah. like that. And it came back that people had ranked the CVs differently on whether they were going to hire these people or not. Based on gender. So Even though the CVs were exactly the same, there was this unconscious bias there. So the men got the job, the women didn't get the job. Mm. Yeah. So well, we're more likely to anyway, exactly. So it's, it's, it, there's stuff there that we, we don't even quite understand what we do. So mm. Professor just... Mark Bergman, who's at the University of Melbourne, he edits a senior, um, a, a very um, important journal in my field, Conservation Biology, and he does all his, makes all of his editorial decisions blind. He has no idea. And he was really shocked to discover that he is accepting more papers from male senior authors and female senior authors, given that he didn't know that they were mm. men or women in that decision process. So the question comes in, <coughs> is it because women are using less forthright language in their cover letters? Yep. Are, ma- are men better at stating the importance of their research? You know, he is so highly tuned into this stuff. I have absolute faith in his decision making. And, you know, he's making it blind, mm. and yet still women are not being as successful it's in trouble. publication. Trouble. So uh, we, stuff. we're going to have to take a break, and we're going to be back in a moment talking with with uh, Lisa Harvey-Smith from CSIRO about uh, astronomy and the Gene Cernan uh, tour that's coming up uh, in Melbourne very shortly, and we're going to have a couple of tickets to give away later in the show on that as well. But we're going to come back to this stuff in the fourth quarter of the show, and we're going to talk about what sort of things can be done because both the conscious and the unconscious. In fact, some of the problems coming from the conscious are because these people, frankly, are unconscious. Um, <laughs> It's a bit harsh. You're referring to your team again, Shane. Well, no, no, no. But, you know, I have met a few men who, frankly, you know, I'd like to take two of a shovel. Um, if it was socially acceptable, you know, I would have done that. But um, but not. Anyway, we'll be back in a moment. Three. Triple. Uh, you're listening to 3RRR Indeed. We do have another guest on the phone. We have Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith. She's from CSIRO's Astronomy and Space Science section. Lisa, can you hear us? 
Yeah, hi Shane. Thanks for having me on the show. Look, it's great to have you on the show, but we, we want to talk about um, your activities with the Gene Cernan um, program to the Ron, and we interviewed him just a few weeks back. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk a bit about your research work, because you're doing this amazing stuff at the moment, looking at some of these extraordinary sized uh, black holes, some three billion times the mass of our sun. Give us a bit of a background on that. Well, that's right. You might have seen some of the stories in the in the media this week. Um, we were doing some testing of our new telescope, uh, the CSIRO's Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder Telescope. And I was looking at this very distant galaxy to try and just do a bit of a mundane test of the system and check that what we saw was what we expected to see. Um, in fact, what we saw was a little bit different from what we'd seen before in this galaxy that was, it was kind of a, a very, very distant, quite faint galaxy in the optical. But it's this kind of monster when you look in infrared light and when you're looking radio waves it's very very bright so we're trying to work out what was going on in this galaxy Mm. and it turns out that we can um, using the radio waves we can actually measure uh, the gas that's swirling around the center of the galaxy very very fast and we found that it was it was moving much faster than we thought before it's actually going about 560 kilometers per second can you imagine how fast that is i mean 560 kilometers is like canberra to melbourne or something like that uh, in one second, so that's how fast this stuff's moving, and the, and the speed of the gas is telling us the mass of the black hole in the centre. So we're finding this huge monster black hole at the centre of this galaxy, which seems to be kind of formed when galaxies collide, and and the black holes at the centres combine to make this giant, supermassive black hole. Now, I, I, I appreciate that that speed is very high, but one of the things I I find just phenomenal is that you can measure something. Uh, you know that precisely at a distance of 1.8 billion light years away how do you do that well it's a little trick using um atoms and molecules actually and and we know the rules of how atoms uh, shine in light when they when they get hot and molecules do the same so there's all these atoms and molecules in space just floating around and um when we look with our radio telescope we look at very precise um frequency and we see the line uh molecular um sort of transition what we call a transition which is where um, a molecule shines in a very specific radio frequency just like your radio station is transmitting at a very specific radio frequency and you have to tune your radio to the exact frequency to see that we do that with our telescopes and we look at a very specific molecule and we know where that line should be but actually we find that it shifts either to the left or to the right to higher or lower frequencies and that tells us how fast it's moving away from us or towards us so we can actually measure the motion of this gas around the center of the galaxy by looking at how the the radio station frequency sort of shifts to the to the side so this is uh dr ray i i assume one of the big deals about the square kilometer array is you're able to do this with with much more precision but what you said at the beginning is the implication is just kind of ringing in my head. You went to look at something you expected to just kind of kind of benchmark it, and you got this amazing new resolution and were able to get a, a new picture of something that you knew. Now, I'm assuming that you guys went through and probably saw the same old thing on, on, on different standards, but is the implication here that even in, instead of just looking at discovering new galaxies and new phenomena, even your, the square kilometer array has the potential to revise our understanding of even the existing black holes and star systems and, and galaxies we've been looking at? Well, that's right. Yeah, when when you look at um, these objects, sometimes you see um, gas that's moving around very fast, and 
and you'll see that with a, a regular telescope. But when you look with a much more sensitive telescope, which is what we did, we used a telescope from, called the Australia Telescope Compact Array, and that's much more sensitive. So we looked down into the noise and we saw other little lines that told us the radio station had sort of moved to the left a lot further than we thought. Now the tiny little signal, signals from that were very, very weak. So we haven't been able to see them before when we looked um, about 20 years ago, some of my colleagues looked back then. I was too young, but um, yeah, they were looking um, with a less sensitive telescope. So when we look with more and more sensitive telescopes like the Square Kilometre Array, we'll actually see details that we can't see now. So we will be able to discover new stuff about objects we're, we're studying right now. Now, Lisa, just before we get on to the, uh, your other task, which is coming up, um, can you describe what this telescope looks like to our listeners? Because it's not your traditional sort of parks dish or, you know, old world observatory with the, you know, big Newtonian telescope in the middle. This is something quite different, isn't it? That's it. You can't rub boot polish on the, the eyepiece and <laughs> make for this one. It's actually like a, a big satellite dish, um, if I can describe it that way. So like, like the Parks dish, but 36 of them. So, so the one we built in Western Australia, the Australian tel- uh, Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, is 36 giant telescopes, three storeys high, uh, 12 metre in diameter across the big dish, and each of those collects radio waves from the distant universe. And we make a, a picture using all 36 of those telescopes. Um, and it's very sensitive and it has a very uh, big field of view so we can see lots of the sky all at once. So we're going to do loads of surveys of millions of galaxies to try and understand better the, the, the way the universe evolves. It sounds fantastic. Now, Lisa, as, as part of your, uh, your coming months, you're going to be wandering around the, uh, the country with Captain Gene Cernan, the last uh, human being who walked on the moon back uh, in the 1970s. Now, we spoke to Captain Cernan a few weeks back. Um, how did you get this gig? I mean, I know I've missed a few phone calls lately, but... How did you? It sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. It's, a, it's a, such an honour. It's a fabulous show. Mm. Actually put put together by Live on Stage Australia, who, who brought us um, Buzz Aldrin last yep. year. So I was very fortunate to be involved in that show as well in Sydney and Melbourne. It's an absolutely fabulous show. And so this this one is is slightly different, but it's still a live event. It's a it's it's a great opportunity for you know ordinary people like ourselves to meet this this global icon, this person who's walked on the surface of the moon. It's almost unimaginable. Um, mm. And so this one, this one's based on the film, The Last uh, Man on the Moon, which is a fantastic look into not only the moon landings and, and Gene Cernan's part in that, but it's got a lovely human story behind it as well. It, it really goes into his life and his emotional kind of attachment to, to what he's done, but also the way it affected his family as well. So there's a lovely sort of human element to it. Mm. And he describes in the film how he, um, it wrote his daughter's initials on the surface of the moon, on the dust, and I, it's just wonderful. It's full of lovely moments like that. Yeah. Now, um, so you're going to you'll be the uh, person questioning him on stage, I assume. Have you got a list? Yeah. So, um, so I'll, I'll introduce the, the film premiere, um, so people will have the opportunity to watch this wonderful film, The Last Man on the Moon. Um, we'll have a brief interval, uh, and then I'll, we'll have an in conversation with Captain Cernan. So I'll, I'll be asking a few questions. Um, and then the audience will have an opportunity to ask him as well, so an audience Q&A. So um, if people jump on to ticketmaster.com.au and, and grab their tickets, um, the, the show's on Tuesday, 31st of May in the evening at the Astor Theatre in Melbourne. 
and uh, if you could go on Ticketmaster, the tickets are selling quite fast, but uh, there's still some yep. available. Sounds great. Lisa, thanks so much for chatting to us today, and uh, I'll be there at that event. So having seen the film already, I'm actually very happy to see you the second time because it's a great movie, and, and to meet the, the man himself um, in the flesh will be, be fantastic as well. So oh, yeah. we look forward to seeing you at the end of the month. Fantastic, Shane. See you then. Great. Dr. Lisa Harvey-Smith is from CSIRO's Astronomy and Space Sciences Division. Three. Triple. Hey, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo, Street to Blah. We're getting excited here. Sorry about a few moments of uh, silence there. Well, it's uh, two seconds, but uh, we like to be precise. We're going to continue our discussion on gender. We were getting feisty we in the were. break. We were. We were, we were getting very oh, feisty until we realised the song had finished. I went nuts. Yeah. <laughs> we were getting feisty because we wanted to make sure uh, we didn't just whinge. Ailey and I have had a lot of whinging yeah. off air about the situation, for, yeah. for, especially for young women in science. Sure did. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, in the we, kitchen we, earlier. No, we were getting vicious, I think. Yeah, no, it was no, nasty. Not with each other, though. Yeah. No. <laughs> but we thought we should spend the last, you know, 10 minutes of the show being a bit more proactive. You know, we know what a lot of the problems are, but how yeah. can we actually fix some of these things? And, you know, Emma's already made three really good suggestions. One of the things from my point of view that people sort of my career stage are facing is that the metrics that, you know, that researchers are are judged by were established by and for full-time workers. So really, you know, what counts is how many papers you've published, uh, how much your papers are cited and how much money you bring in. And if you've had, you know, maternity leave two or three or four times over and you've come back working part-time, you know, you're never going to measure up. Mm. And so I think one of the key things we need to think about is how we can play that game better Mm. and and attack that better. And uh, Emily Nicholson, who Emma actually mentioned, published a paper last year in Science called Accounting for Career Breaks, and she described how she applied for a whole lot of jobs and never even got an interview and then totally revamped her CV, whereby she didn't expect the people reading her CV to kind of do the sums themselves in terms of, you know, relative to the opportunity she'd had, what she'd, uh, you know, the papers she'd published and all the rest. She actually did it for them and said, well, you know, I've worked this number of years and uh, this is how many papers I published, but had I been working full time across all of that stage, this is actually how much I would have produced. Um, and all of a sudden, she, you know, she lands an ongoing job. So mm. there are ways mm. I think that women can be very strategic about saying, yes, in these years, this is what I've achieved. But had I been working full time across all of those years, this is how productive I actually can be. Yeah. Because the metrics aren't going to change fast. No, they are seriously yeah. institutionalised. It's, and, it's and difficult. Can I just add there, Jen, too? I mean, what, one of the things I think is very problematic, and it's not just in Australia, it's around the world. There's one pathway that exists for becoming a researcher. And if you don't follow that one, goodbye. And, I mean, this is just a nonsense. It's it's an old world view. um, And, you know, it may be that you can get fantastic researchers that don't have as much international experience but have a lot of local experience, Um, have worked in, you know, frankly, I love researchers who've worked in industry settings, Mm -hmm. who've got, you know, more of a problem-solving with reality aspect of it rather than, yep. than, than not so. You know, that, that diversity is good too. But also often people who are working part-time, they're, you, you know, they're not sunbaking the other days that they're not <laughs> at work. They're either deeply committed to other community events, they are volunteering places, or they're looking after children. And any of those diverse experiences brings great wealth to a yeah. workplace. Yeah. And I think those diverse experiences too don't just extend to women. They also no, extend to men in the sense that there's this real stigma, I think, in a lot of workplaces about men working part-time in Absolutely. caring situations. Big stigma. Huge stigma. Mm. And I think, you know, in, uh, practices and policies to, to encourage men to work part-time as well and, and take a, a role in, in any caring responsibilities or things like that can also 
you know, help workplaces in general. Mm. Mm. And that stigma, I should say too, you know, being a being a guy who works in with a lot of women and um, have kids and on occasion, you know, need to go mm. and pick them up, it comes from both genders. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It is definitely not just from one gender. No. That stigma has is, is got to be resolved by both. And I think yeah. that's one of my big things, you know, if I had any power to change anything, which sadly I don't, but I would provide you know, particularly young women and men with more diverse role models. I mean, as Emma, you know, was happy enough to admit, she is an exception. But the mm. problem is that generally, the, the, you know, when there are women in science events, the women who are held up are those who, you know, despite being women, are superstars, have achieved incredibly highly. Mm. Now, a lot of young women look at that and say, well, I don't really want that life. I, I want to be able to work part-time. I want to be able to be with my kids or devote myself to something else. So th- does that mean science isn't for me? Mm. No, but if that's... we provide a greater diversity of role models for both women men and women to say you can be successful without being a professor by the age of 35 there are other versions of success that benefit society benefit individuals benefit workplaces i don't see those role models at all Mm. yeah well that's that's what i was just going to say it comes down to how you define success and and you know back to what shane was saying before this really kind of you know linear career progression kind of way that we think about science particularly in the university sector but not only in the university sector um you know how we define that success is okay you go from your phd to your postdoc your postdoc to a more senior level goes up through the professor stages but you know thinking about that diversity um you know of of workplace practices you know communication things like that can really you know Mm. i think we need to rethink how we define success Mm. in that way i'd like to run something past you that i've often said to to a number of my colleagues senior colleagues and that is if i think of an average researcher and I work out how much teaching they do, how much admin they do, and then how much research, the part that keeps you on the conveyor belt, the part that's crucial, and I break it up over a week and say, okay, how much actual research is done? I'd figure it's about one and a half days yep. for, for average researcher. Yep. Well, what I don't understand is <laughs> if you want to go and have a family, be with your kids, or go surfing, or whatever it is that floats your boat, and you want to do it part-time, why can't we have a system where a person can do one and a half days of research and remain competitive. Now, I get a variety of responses to this. And, oh, well, there's a lot of administrative work. And I said, well, that, hang on. So we're talking about money here because you could offset that, especially with people who take paternity or maternity leave. You could offset that condition so that they could work one and a half days a week, often from home, give them research assistance, whatever they need to keep them on the conveyor. We're not talking about full-time researchers here. I mean, I know there are researchers that are full-time. I know that. They're the ones that don't teach. But at the higher levels, that's not true. No, no, In fact, no. the further up you go, the less time. Mm. Dr. Ray, when was the last time you saw your lab? Don't say oh. Friday. Well, no, no. We, we cleaned it up last week. So I had the, why is this here? Who did this? Who, who put left this here? Because I hadn't seen the lab for three months. Yeah. Mm. I was going to say because they installed it in 2014. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is new. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there isn't a, an element there of, ridiculousness in terms of we we can actually do this but it's a very deliberate act to say okay all this person if we're going to invest in this person that's what this is about investing or continuing our investment then it's about making it work for them under their conditions but but unfortunately institutions aren't focused on how to help part-timers because it's no no no. nobody's focused and a lot of this stuff we're talking about is real kind of institutional change and of course you know these things move at snail's pace mm. and, and take a long time. But, you know, as Jen said before, there's there's kind of real 
almost grassroots things you can do. You know, game your CV, game your, your grant applications and, and put these things out there up front, um, you know, if you have had time off. Things like even small things. I think, uh, Shane, you were saying the other day about, you know, panels at, at conferences and, mm. and public panels. Mm. Make sure and remind people to have both men and women in equal numbers on those panels. Mm. Yep. And yep. watch the language that we use. Yeah. You know, often and you go to meetings and you hear shocking sexist language that I don't think is conscious. It's not deliberate, no. but it's mm. just Very right. gendered language, yeah. So years ago I used to work for the Vice-Chancellor of Melbourne University and, and we used to run a lot of events. And mm. I remember when I first started working with him, him, him saying to me, you know, you don't have gender balance amongst your panel. I thought, oh, dear, you know, I'd, I'd come from a physics background where, sorry, what? Oh, women. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> not here. Um, anyway, and I, I remember the first time I did it, and it took a lot of extra work mm. to make sure there was gender balance. The first time I did it, but not after that. Yeah. And he was very particular about this. He said, no, 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 this is something you just have to do. It's yep. the right thing to do. We're not doing it to tick a box. Yep. It's the right thing to do. And after doing it the first time, mm. I, I have to say, it was, was no extra work. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Because those kind of small steps are really important and those are what courage, encourage the, the institutional change ultimately. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, I, I think they... But there are also bigger, broader things. Yeah, so, I mean, it's something that everybody has to take responsibility for, but, you know, there are things happening. So we know yeah. that um, National Medical Research, um, Medical and Health Research Council is now changing things so that unless an institution is really proactive about gender mm. equity, they can't get funding. Yeah. That's right. And in, in fact, that's gone even further in the UK and, and a system we're trying here at the moment in Australia is this this Athena Swan, which some of you may have heard of. So, um, the the science in Australia gender equity. Uh, project, I suppose you could call it, uh, run by the Australian Academy of Sciences, is implementing this Athena Swan thing. And basically, it's an evaluation and accreditation program. So institutions sign up for it. And there's they, 32. Yeah, there's signed 32 up. signed up around Australia, including many universities and, and places like mm. CSIRO. Um, they basically have to go through their numbers, work out where they're losing women, you know, what their gender diversity is uh, in the workplace, and then in the coming years, present plans and policies to improve that and it's worked really really well in the uk i think it's been running there for about 10 years mm, and they've yeah. seen tangible results from this and in fact it's worked so well that people who receive you know you receive kind of a, a bronze silver and gold rating now the medical research facility uh, funders over in the uk actually don't fund you unless you have silver or gold status yeah that's so a big, that's a big i mean that's a big deal i mean yeah the way to make these changes usually is either to hope that people think that it's the right thing to do mm. we've been doing that for a while it hasn't quite worked but out that, yeah, um work. or to say well you know what we're gonna we're gonna hit you where it hurts yep. and you'll do this for a year you'll complain and then we'll just move on yeah and that's it's a short-term bit of pain and yeah. a, a long-term gain yeah. so, but i mean in in the grand scheme of cultural change 10 <clears> years is actually not a hugely long oh, no, time. It's very short. Yeah. And yeah. I think in the meantime, it's just really important that we think about, you know, positive voices around women in science. Absolutely. You know, anyone who's listening who has a daughter, cousin, niece, friend, you know, who loves science, don't let anyone ever tell, That's right. tell that, yeah. that girl, Particularly that from woman, the young age. she can't make yeah. a career in science because she can. Absolutely. And I think this show, if anything, uh, that hopefully it does, um, it shows that we have some amazing female researchers on this show. Um, more than 50%, slightly more than 50% <laughs> of our panel yeah. is uh, female on average for the program. It's not an effort to do that because it's easy to find people who are, who are good.
in that space. So we're going to have to wind it up. You t- you, you We've t- got at you least another talk. hour. I was going to say, I could go oh, another three, I reckon. Well, you'll have to talk to Cam because he's waiting over there to cook some food. And, uh, Are he... we happy to eat while we talk about women yeah. in science? That's oh, well, fine. Yeah, good, good luck. You know, that. I wonder if he'd take you up on that. Just, yeah, he might. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, he came in pretty feisty last week about the environment, so you never know what he's going to do. He gets out of control. Folks, we're going to uh, leave it there, though. We're going to talk to you again next week. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Pleasure, Dr. Shane. For backing me up, just in case. Um, they attacked me or something. Other, you know, they, no, they, no, no, no. They attacked you. I probably would have piled on. Yes, <laughs> so, uh, no we doubt. know you're on our side. <laughs> Dr. Ailey, Dr. Jen, I am definitely on your side, and it's something that uh, I think all reasonable people should be on that side. So, Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed and for answering those many, many phone calls we got for the Gene Cernan tickets. Um, that's on later in the month. If you want to go and see it, folks, have a look on Ticket Tech. It, uh, the film is fantastic. It's, I, I'm not a big driver of documentary films, but that one was just a really beautiful film. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Remember, science is everywhere. Well, almost everywhere. Not so much in Canberra. Um, but it's everywhere where we look. We'll leave you now with the team from Eat It. Uh, Cam and Matt Stedman are over there, ready to go. Thanks for listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. Talk to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.